You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. I'm your host, Sean Devine. The podcast is supported by workonrails.com. If you have a Ruby on Rails job to promote, you can list it for free using the code RELAUNCH. This is episode number 143, a conversation with Terrence Lee. Hey, Terrence. Hey, Sean. How's it going? It's going great. Thanks so much for spending time uh, today to talk to us. Uh, tell us a bit about yourself and what you're currently doing and how you got here. Sure. Um, I guess I work for Heroku. I've been maintaining kind of Heroku's Ruby support for the last two, two and a half years. Um, I think ever since the, if you're familiar with Heroku's stacks and stuff, uh, ever since basically a few months into Cedar, uh, I kind of started taking that over. Um, and then I'm involved with uh, a slew of other open source projects as well. Uh, put some time into Rescue. Uh, done a good amount of stuff in Bundler and uh, got involved with Rails Girls, which I didn't have any plans on doing any of that. And uh, recently just caught CommitBit on RubyCore. Wow. Wow. So there's a lot to talk about in the last, or in terms of what's going on right now, let alone the last two and a half years. But let's spend, say, five minutes talking about uh, what happened before two and a half years ago when you joined Heroku's Ruby Task Force. How'd you get there? Uh, tell us a bit about your programming journey. Sure. Uh, well, I did uh, comp sci in university, um, and that I think that was around, like, I graduated from undergrad in 2007, then went straight to grad school because I had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, and then when I graduated from that, like, that's when the housing market crashed, so, like, no one was hiring. And uh, I took a job in Austin, Texas, at a small startup called Other Inbox. Um, I think they're now required by Return Path, some other email thing. But they were basically a email service for, uh, that would go and try to sift through your email and automate like take out all of your automated messages and things. So the stuff left in your inbox is messages that matter to you from like important people or people that you have personal communication with. Um, the other stuff wasn't that it's not important, but it'd be like things like Amazon notifications and uh, things like that, messages and mailing lists that you'd sign up for. Um, so just trying to help prioritize your inbox, I guess. Have you used the, the Gmail feature that's sort of like that? No? I have. Uh, I have used it a little bit. Uh, it's been kind of hit or miss for me, but I think it's probably just because I haven't been training it very well. <laughs> Maybe it's because you didn't write it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, what about in school? Did you program Ruby in school? How did you find your way to Ruby in the first place? Yeah. Uh, so like a lot of people, I think back in the day, I, I did uh, Perl and PHP, and I was building some PHP sites uh I was helping out some of the departments with doing, uh, like, PHP things for some research stuff at the time. And then I heard about Ruby on Rails uh, being the new hotness for web development. Uh, and I was uh, doing, I guess, like, systems administration work uh, for the Center for uh, Speech and Processing at uh, the university. And I wanted to pick up Ruby, and they let me, like, during part of work time, kind of, like, learn Ruby and kind of automate, like, part of the systems doing Ruby stuff. And after picking up the pickaxe and reading through it and, and really programming it, 
I kind of fell in love with Ruby, and I didn't even, like, start programming in Rails or anything at the time. And I think this was, like, Rails 0.910 era, to give you a time frame. Um, and then after that, I, like, started doing stuff in Rails and uh, kind of just picked up stuff there. And uh, then I got a job at Other Inbox. Um, and I did some internships where I managed to sneak Ruby in. Like, I interned at Akamai, where they had me migrate a mason Perl bait web front end for this Q&A system, and I got to do that in Rails. And then at Bloomberg, I also interned there and got to sneak some Ruby in, in with the C++ that I had to do. Cool. So you went from sneaking it in to being in kind of the center of the Ruby community at Heroku. Tell us about getting that job and, and then go into some detail about what your current job entails because for me and I, I bet for a lot of others we know you as a super positive guy on twitter that sends out the messages that say the the new version of ruby supported and and i wonder what's in back of that process so the more you can tell the better sure uh so i i worked at like other inbox and did consulting for a little while and that for about a, 13 months i think in total and then uh we during one of my consulting projects i I like I, I saw Heroku I think the first time at in Vegas for the RailsConf and they had that booth and I, I looked into it a little bit and I remember at the time I was thinking this thing's never gonna succeed or take off and uh, I kind of balked at it uh, just because you know we were doing a bunch of stuff on EC2 like a lot of people were um, and still do today and it, it worked fine for us uh, and it wasn't until Blake Miserini came to a local Austin on Rails um, meetup and demoed it and did it and showed it to us that it really clicked for me. And I think after that point, I kind of really believed in the vision and like bought like everything Heroku uh, was trying to solve. Um, and so over the Christmas holidays, I took our consulting project and just tried staging it on Heroku and getting it working and it was super easy, and we managed to convince our client to to switch over to it. Um, and Roku was like great and super fast back then, but like there's still it was like definitely during its infancy days. And I spent a bunch of time on the Pound Heroku channel on IRC, and was just helping. Like I was getting a lot of help from David Dollar, um, who was the guy that eventually got me hired pretty much but like I, I was i got i got i established a good relationship with him because i would have like questions and you know i, I, w- I wouldn't just ask him anything i would spend a lot of time on my own trying to figure stuff out and then when i really got stuck i would talk to him and then i ended up being the guy who helped a bunch of people out and so when they were he was working on the support team at the time and when they were looking to hire someone else he came and talked to me about it and being in love with like the product and everything they were trying to do, I interviewed and they offered me a job where I would work remote on the sport team with David. And I did that for about 15 months. Hmm. Um, and during that time, uh, so when back in that, uh, around that time frame was when uh, Bundler, I guess, was starting to like being talked about in public like Yehuda and Carl were working on it and they came to a Lone Star Ruby conference uh, 
the previous year, and they demoed it uh, during one of the lightning talks there, and I thought it was the greatest things like that I've ever seen for a long time because I remember being like starting on any new Rails project, and it would take like a whole day to just like even commit like get the test running locally on your machine, like installing the right gems and figuring out like what gems you need to install that weren't documented and they would have and we were using cucumber back then so like different versions of cucumber were not compatible at all but if you put them in config.gem and you did rake gem install like it wouldn't work properly and and so that would always take like a long time for every person we hired um and so when i saw bundler it was super amazing uh to me to be able to essentially cut that that whole like thing down and so when Heroku supported Bundler, like I immediately like got our app upgraded to it, even though it was like in beta. And it ended up being like a super painful process. I'm sure a ton of people who got involved back then remember the painful days of the point nine era where things would break every release and then they would fix certain bugs, but then it would break other things and uh, every time Heroku would upgrade Bundler, it would break our app in production. It was kind of a really bad time then. Um, now, what year was this, give or take? Uh, this was um, 2000, I want to say 2010, mm-hmm. 2009, 2010, around then. Uh, yeah, so it was like, yeah, the beginning of 2010, the end of 2009 uh, for the Bundler Point Nine stuff. Uh, and uh, like Bundler Point was really different because it was the one where everything was sandboxed, so if you're familiar with uh, dash dash path and Bundler, where it installs it in a separate directory that's separate from your system, that was kind of how Bundler point eight worked. Hmm. Um, but for a lot of people, were kind of unhappy with that, and they want to use their system gems and stuff. And they changed a lot. They changed all that in Bundler point nine, which is kind of the Bundler that we know today, uh, where it interacts with the system, or you can vendor it uh, and what have you. But the default mode was to install stuff to the system. Uh, but anyways, like, yeah, so they would break things all the time, and anytime Heroku would upgrade, like, it would break our app, and then we'd have to spend a bunch of time fixing it, and so when I got to Heroku, like, this was a very, like, poignant subject for me, like, I was very sensitive to this fact, um, that, uh, I eventually got put in charge of, like, Bundler on Heroku, (laughs) so I got really, I got to interact with Carl and Yehuda a lot. And I remember at the time being super scared to talk to these guys because, you know, I, I just started programming Ruby and here were these two guys, like, who were super famous uh, in the Ruby community. And, uh, but after talking with them and trying to get good support on Heroku um, and working with them for a while at the end of, like, basically the .926 release and, like, the RC cycle, um, what, what, after they released 1.0, Carl made the joke that I should commit to Bundler. And uh, at, at this point, I've never, like, I never cloned the project or really looked at the source code at all. <laughs> and then the next day, he was like, here's commit bit, bro. And uh, then they, like, soon after, they quit and left Engine Yard and, uh, you know, they kind of moved to uh, other things. And uh, so I was kind of stuck with this commit bit and not really knowing what to do. Um Wow. So was so was Bundler your first um, r- big or not even big, but open source Ruby project that you had a big role in? 
Uh, yeah, it definitely was. I, I did some stuff with, like, the Pivotal Tracker gem with uh, Justin Smestad while I was working at Other Inbox, because uh, we used Pivotal Tracker there. Um, but, like, I only made a few feature patches here and there, and he gave me commit bit, but Bundler is probably the uh, real, like, serious first project that, like, someone trusted me with. Oh, um, man. So the first project's, like, the most core gem to most projects that exist yeah, on Yeah, it was, uh, it, Bundler changed a lot of how I viewed open source and maintenance and other things. Um, I, I think I became a lot more conservative after working on Bundler. Um, we, uh, after getting commit bit, like, the first thing I did was fix some tests, and then it, it probably took me, like, six to eight months to even feel comfortable, like, making patches on my own. Uh, I was definitely really scared of, like, breaking things for other people. And it didn't help that when we were, like, that RubyConf after getting commit bit, uh, we we released, like, Bundler, and it broke Bundler for everyone. And I think there was a while of, like, six releases where every other release was a broken release that we had a, like, yank. <laughs> uh, so it was definitely, like, kind of rough a little bit when I was getting started. And it took us, like, 15 months or something since I joined to get, like, Bundler 1.1 out. And I started working on that, like, a while ago. So one of the questions that I had planned to, to ask was what's the difference between, you know, working on a project like Bundler that's so core and you know, such infrastructure for most Ruby projects compared to, you know, a project that's that's not, you know, as low level and not as uh, depended on by the community, but <laughs> maybe you haven't ever had one of those projects. <laughs> uh, I mean, I've definitely had, like, when I was uh, when I was working at Other Inbox, I had a lot more side and hobby projects that were fun. Um, and, you know, it didn't really matter what you did. Uh, and you could abandon them however you wanted to. Um, with Bundler, it's been... It's been interesting. Like I've had to figure out like how to be conservative, and it it's been a learning process of just like being too conservative, uh, but also moving the project forward. Um, and so I've been super thankful to to Yehuda and Carl and Andre. Uh, they've all been really instrumental in I think me developing as a programmer, working on that project, and kind of guiding me. Uh, oddly enough, uh, like. I think it's, like, Carl and Yehuda don't really work on Bundler very much these days. I think Yehuda comes in and, like, talks about, uh, like, larger issues sometimes with us, like, from a consulting kind of perspective or, like, an advisory point of view. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't do as much code uh, nowadays. And Andre's been kind of leading the charge for the last, like, year and a half, um, uh, kind of maintaining that project. And I mostly just do features uh, every now and then we talk about higher level things, but it, I, he, uh, he's the one that's a little more aggressive, at least in the beginning about merging pull requests and other things. And I'm the guy who has to come in and be like, Hey, wait a minute. Let's think about that. Like, I'm not sure this is a good idea. So it, it's nice to kind of have that balance, I guess, of, uh, where we can talk about something and, and, uh, decide together and come to a conclusion. So I was so interested in listening to your your comments about Bundler that I forgot to ask you to describe it for someone that's listening that may not understand exactly what Bundler does. Oh, yeah. So why don't we take uh, so, a step back and do that? Yeah, so Bundler, if you're not familiar, um, is a dependency manager system for Ruby. So it allows you to specify uh, various libraries that you want, and then it will go and pull those down and figure out the dependency graph and pull all of 
your dependencies dependencies all the way down and so you just have to specify essentially your top level dependencies and you can get a working application and this has helped a lot with uh onboarding so like the the problem that hit home for me way back in the day was uh onboarding a new um person on your team or in open source you can now just package a gem file which is where you specify your dependencies in your project and then you type a single command bundle install and you get all of your dependencies and you're up and running you don't have to figure uh all this other stuff out so in a way it's uh both a tool and a the gem file provides the gem file and the gem file.lock provide documentation for your project um so for your application it's super super important it's kind of been adopted as the standard of how we do things in ruby land yeah, I wonder. I would imagine that uh, the majority of people listening, or at least near half, if not the majority, haven't worked in in Rails without Bundler existing. Um, yeah. What do you think the biggest change is? You know, so w- what would be the biggest surprise to a new Rails programmer today if they transported in a time machine back three years ago? Before I think you'd be surprised how hard and difficult like these things were. Like, like this stuff just isn't. A problem anymore like it isn't something you think about and the dependency world back then was kind of crazy and i think it uh i think two things happened uh bundler came out and uh nick caranto and all those guys who guys and girls who worked on like the new ruby gems and making that super simple to publish gems so like mm-hmm. also worked by like you know like technical pickles with uh jeweler and you know you, you have ho and all these tools around uh that made gem publishing easier so i think that and bundler made kind of this gem the ruby gems ecosystem much more vibrant because now it's just so simple to publish a gem and and have dependencies and then get those dependencies and and get them to work and back in the day that was definitely not the case it was definitely an ordeal to publish a gem uh, which is why we didn't see a lot of gems with dependencies so uh, a good case of this is like if you look at rails back in the day and you look at its dependency list it was much smaller and the gems were definitely like bigger um and now you're kind of seeing like more interdependencies in modules which introduce their own set of problems but the fact that you can do that now and, and break stuff up smaller and like even in enterprises like extracting or in like your own private project extracting code into gems and making those available and, and having that system just was not something that was even considered back in the day so the community has a bias, I think, uh, currently against um, including too many dependencies, or really many at all, in in uh, gems that come out. Do you think that that's with good reason, or maybe overdone, or um, what's your point of view about that? Yeah, I mean, to some extent, uh, I think it's a little overdone, but I can see why. Like uh, working at Heroku and doing support for Heroku, I've seen my fair share of a lot of applications and. Uh, like it's not uncommon to see applications that have 200 and sometimes up to 300 like gem dependencies like that's a lot of library code that uh, you're depending on that you didn't write you know mm-hmm. um, and I, I think with with stuff like bundler and ruby gems now it's so easy to like add another dependency like you don't have to really think about it right you add a single line you run a new command you check in your code and you're kind of good to go um but at the same time, uh, like I, I think type modules that work well uh, are definitely a boon to the community, and we shouldn't be too afraid to use them. But right. uh, it's definitely like a lot of the, the gems that we do use uh, 
are kind of generalized solutions as they are in open source. And obviously anything that you were to write yourself um, would be much more specific and smaller and you wouldn't have, it wouldn't do nearly as much. Right. Um, and, and the other, the other side uh, from pure like low level performance perspective is the more gems and stuff you had in your load path, the slower it takes to boot your app because anytime you require it, you do require it has to like work through the whole thing. Right. So what do you think is today's bundler um, dependency management kind of problem that that in three years or five years from today we'll look back and it'll be solved the same way that dependency management was solved by bundler? Do you have an idea about that? Uh, I don't have anything on the top of my head. I mean, something I would love to see would be like uh, performance tooling or like introspection kind of. Mm. Like you look at like the, you look at JRuby and the JVM and looking at how robust the tooling ecosystem is there uh, with the fact that you can like uh, I mean this is nature of the VM but like you can introspect like you can you can launch a uh, a tool in it you can examine the memory and you can like see it in real time and, and you can dump memory out and then load it into like a new VM and, and stuff like that like, I think while that opens a lot of doors on like what you can do in production and what you can do in your application mm-hmm. um but even even from the beginning of tooling, like work that uh, Amon Gupta and like Sam Saffron are doing uh, with just trying to make people aware of like performance and other heuristics around that, I think are are going to be really important uh, if we want to Ruby to continue to be as popular as it is today and continue to grow um, as we start building bigger applications. So that's a super good um, segue into talking about Heroku and Ruby and Ruby 2.1 and Ruby in general. So um, before I get into some specific Ruby 2.1 sort of questions, uh, tell us a bit about what you do for Heroku now as it relates to maintaining Ruby. Uh, So my main job at Heroku, I work with Richard Schneeman and uh, I run the, we call it the Ruby Task Force at Heroku and our job is to provide the uh, an amazing experience for deploying and running applica- like Ruby applications on the platform. Um, and so this this like that's a huge umbrella, and it, it covers like a ton of stuff. So obviously, the thing that most people are, are familiar with our work is the uh, the Ruby build pack, uh, which is the the like glue code that does all the Ruby specific bits when you deploy. So it, it gets your dependencies using Bundler. It determines what version of Ruby you're running. It does any of the like it, things it needs to do to cache gems between deploys. It does stuff with uh, Rails 3 and Rails 4, um, runs rake assets precompile, uh, writes like a database YAML file based off of your database URL provided by your database add-on, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So it kind of wraps all that into one piece of package that um, at Heroku we have these uh, this the service uh, that is the slug compiler that essentially builds these slugs, which is your application with all of its dependencies and whatnot. So the, it, it executes the Ruby-specific bits for you. So whether this is unfair or not, I'm not sure. But sometimes people complain about how long it takes to to build a new 
slug of their app and relaunch it. Um, since it sounds like you're about the best guy I can imagine to ask about this, you know, what would you what would you say to those people, and you know, what tips to would you give to make it go faster? You know, what takes the amount of time that it takes, etc. Um, yeah, so uh, I think uh, people assume that the build packs actually super simple and you don't actually have to do a lot but uh we actually put a lot of time and energy into making the build pack uh deal with issues that you don't want to have to deal with like fetching and figuring out what ruby to install fetching like doing security stuff for it um there's a bunch of hacks we had to put in for ruby gems uh like things that you just don't have to you you shouldn't as a user want to or care to deal with right like you just want ruby and you want to work um other things like obviously things that are known to be slow or like when you run bundle install it has to uh run bundler and potentially depending on how large your gem set is like it can be slow uh we recently started supporting bundler 1.5 or yeah bundler 1.5 and that added parallel install, so we're doing that now. And to give you kind of metrics, we started doing metrics this uh, last year, and um, I think we've improved build performance when we started measuring it uh, by 40% from when we started measuring it to what it is now. Wow. So we're definitely very aware of the fact that it is slow and that fast is a feature. Um, so so, so the, the parallel install is, is done by default by, by the build pack, right? Yes, so we enable it by default. Uh, we ran into some hiccups, and we've contributed patches back. Uh, obviously, like me being on Bundler Core, we have a tight integration with the Bundler team, and I personally did not work on the parallel, a lot of the parallel install feature, but I helped bring certain things to the finish line, like getting the RCs out and whatnot. And uh, there's there's definitely a lot of... There's still more stuff we can do there, and there's uh, a ton of stuff that's on uh our plate for making the ecosystem better um and in general like at heroku we we try to improve the community ecosystem uh if we can and upstream stuff and not just do heroku specific things right um uh like uh the bundler one one stuff when we did the api dependency thing to make those things faster uh so there's the bundler stuff that's slow uh shelling out in ruby is not necessarily super fast either um so We've been trying to aggressively cache those things and figure that stuff out. Um, and then uh, I think the, the slowest thing for a lot of people is probably rake assets precompile. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just kind of been a huge sore point for, I think, us and the community as a whole and people in Rails um, dealing with sprockets and, and all those issues. Um, now, what's uh, the current state of that? Is it... it, it um have changes been made in either four or four one to how the precompile happens? In other words, is it uh, does it precompile everything or just do an incremental change on on based on what files changed? Do you know? Um, it's supposed to just do incremental stuff, but it has to do. It still has to do a bunch of calculations to figure that out. Uh, I mean, to, to throw it on the table, like it's it's a super hard problem. Like as much as we. Uh, you know, complain about the software. Like the the problem they're trying to solve is not simple at all. Like I spent a ton of time talking with Yehuda about it over the last few years, being unhappy with the current solution when it came out and it not being fast enough, it not, uh, you know, it having to do all this other stuff. Um, 
and uh, if you guys ever followed, uh, there was that rake pipeline project that you could have worked on um, that was never finished. But like, you know, it, it's it's a hard problem to solve, uh, and trying to figure out the dependency chains is not something that's super simple. Um, mm-hmm. And then you have to figure out the require and load order, which is also important, or it might break your assets. Um, what, what about the um, what about pre booting? Is that is that supported by Heroku now and is I know it used to be a labs feature. It, it still is a labs feature. The Heroku preboot feature is a labs feature. Um and the the feature that you're talking about just to explain to people who aren't familiar is that uh Heroku will uh it extends your deploy time because Heroku will wait for essentially all of your slugs to boot up and then cut over once they are. Um but it's sending like a hard fast, so keep your old slugs up and route requests to them, and then wait till your new slugs are up, and then switch them over. Um, and uh, it's we're not I, we're, we at the company aren't happy with that feature. Uh, we understand that it's a problem that needs to be solved, uh, which is why it's a labs feature, and the labs feature was a spike to solve that issue. Um, but I think we can do better, and we want to come up with something that is better before enabling it, essentially, for all customers. Because uh, one of the huge downsides is it, uh, inc- it makes your deploy times really long. Um, and for something that needs to be agile and fast, and um, it's not adequate enough. Yeah, as a user, that's sort of the, the rough trade-off, I think, I've faced, at least. Yeah, well, especially if you, you need to fix a bug, like you need something yeah. done quickly. Like You don't want to be waiting like five minutes to like get this thing out right so so that that's an area that hasn't come out of labs just because because it's it's very important not because it's not important right no we're definitely aware of the issue i personally am not working on the problem but i've been involved in discussions and uh you know like some of the stuff that comes out of that like uh talking about like rolling deploys uh as a potential thing uh and and things that come out of that that you have to think about is like how they affect assets and other things and database migrations and how do you handle that uh, eloquently and can you and, and, and those problems there. Like, you don't want to have rolling deploys and get, have people getting broken assets and how they affect your CDN and whatnot. Right. So tell us a bit more about what uh, what's entailed with, with supporting a new version of Ruby. So let's be specific. So take Ruby 2.1. That becomes available recently. What happens... Uh, at Heroku and with you to make sure that that's a smooth process for those of us that use Ruby 2.1 on Heroku? Sure. Uh, so with each one of my goals with the team has been trying to get Ruby releases out on day zero and to support the core team with preview releases when they release them. Um, and so I have a script that actually builds all these Rubies, so we've automated it. Um, and it's up on my GitHub somewhere. I can send you the link, post the podcast if you want to link to it. Um, but it, essentially, it goes through and it downloads the source files and configures it. And, I've, and uh, I spent a ton of time like figuring out how to build Rubies and, and the different configuration options. And there's actually some differences between the different Rubies and how you build them. Um, so, for instance, there's this amazing flag called enable load relative, uh, but in Ruby 187 and 192, it doesn't work. Hmm. Uh, and so what this flag does, it allows you to build a Ruby, and uh, the 
it, a lot of times you like set a prefix of where you want it installed. So like on Heroku, like Ruby goes in a very specific directory, and you would prefix it there, uh, so it's there. Uh, so one of the things that we have to deal with at Heroku is in our build system, stuff gets built in a temp directory. So like a tempter gets made, and uh, you know all your stuff gets built there, which is you know when you're handling multiple builds and things, it seems to make a lot of sense, right? Uh, and one of the problems that people aren't aware of is that if you don't use something like enable load relative, if you try to use a Ruby binary that is not in the prefix that you tell to install, your all your load paths are messed up and you can't require anything. Hmm. Uh, so you can't even require anything in standard lib. And uh, it, it was definitely like a huge challenge, like figuring all that stuff out. And then uh, in Ruby 187 and 192, like that flag didn't exist, and we actually filed bugs and got stuff fixed in Ruby 193, I believe. Um, and I, I sat down with Yehuda and we, we dug through the C code um, and figuring out like why things worked and didn't work. Um, and uh, so actually for Ruby 192, we build two different Rubies. We have a build Ruby where we know where that is that isn't in the production mm-hmm. one. And we also have like your production Ruby that gets bundled into your, app, your slug uh, to be used during runtime. Uh, but for Ruby 193 and up, we can actually just flip this flag on and then you can have Ruby and it will find all the your libraries properly, um, and you can put it anywhere. So I think Takato uses this uh, for the Mac Ruby for building its Rubies as huh. well. So it sounds like yeah, like at first it was quite a bit of work to get all this working, but now you've got it relatively yeah, smooth. Yeah, so at least building a Ruby is not uh, too bad. Um, and then we kind of just run it through a gamut of tests of applications, other things to make sure it's not breaking anything when we publish it out. Um, and so when a new Ruby comes out, we can build it and test it and then release it usually within a few hours of the release notice. Um, so we, we try to be pretty good about that. Um, and then the same thing with patch levels. Like, you know, like a lot of the patch levels are security fixes, so we want to get those out as soon as possible. Right. So uh, when you uh, looked into your crystal ball at what, you know, what problems may be solved in five years that seem really hard right now, you talked about... Um, performance and and introspecting the applications you know performance characteristics and etc so 2.1 is a pretty a pretty big release for that topic um have you looked much into the areas that sam saffron's been talking about and you know do you have any thoughts about what heroku can do to take advantage of um ruby's sort of gc uh uh, new gc information in 2.1 or any other features that that seem interesting um, I mean, I haven't. I don't have very strong thoughts on what Heroku specifically can do for Ruby two one besides enabling and uh, I guess like help document and and make that those tools available to people. Um, I mean, you should be able to run any of that stuff on Heroku. Obviously, running like some of the profiling stuff that like Amon had. If you go to Amon's blog, like Amon has a great post on profiling um, an application like that's actually running like you can insert code and and get output out um, obviously that's a little harder on Heroku without being able to SSH into a box so I, I love to see us move in direction I know it's on the table somewhere but it's just not the most important thing we're working on right now mm-hmm. um, to be able to use uh, those tools uh, and obviously not just for Ruby like uh, getting that kind of access uh, opens lots of doors to lots of other debugging and performance tools in other languages, uh, especially things like the JVM. And uh, but yeah, like uh, some that stuff is really awesome. Uh, 
the the rack there's that rack middleware he references that you can use to kind of get that information out of your application as well right uh, so that probably will have to suffice for now at least on heroku unless you want to just run stuff uh with that's not like your main application uh with production data and you just want to run it in a dyno and kind of get heuristics and performance then you can obviously do that uh in its own uh, rendezvous shell but yeah but i mean for what it's worth i think that that um figuring out what settings to use to to optimize your the performance characteristics of your app given given whatever your goals are whether it's you know fast boot time or fewer gcs or shorter time per gc or you know whatever it is you're trying to do that seems pretty uh that, that's a new topic for a lot of people that are programming in ruby and and anything to help with that i would think would be would be pretty nice, especially given that the memory sort of ceiling on Heroku is, is, is well, it exists. I mean, it always exists, but it, it may be lower than it would be on your own machine. Sure. Uh, yeah, and, and I think one of the, one, so one of the big improvements in one that uh, I think a lot of people probably won't notice is that, uh, uh, at least not immediately, is that, uh, like, a lot of those GC defaults have been tuned uh, to, mm-hmm. for larger applications uh, out of the box. Um, so the Ruby 2.1 has different defaults than uh, before 2.1. Right. So uh, uh, talking about Ruby uh, in our conversation before we started recording, you mentioned that you uh, received a commit bit for Ruby. So uh, that's uh, super exciting. Congratulations, and tell us a bit about that. Thank you. Uh, yeah, so um, being at Heroku, we're, um, I'm on the Ruby security mailing list uh, just because it's you know, for platforms and other people supporting Ruby, it's it's kind of nice to get to know things ahead of time so you're ready and you can provide good support for your customers. Um, and then, uh, so there was talk, uh, there was that Ruby, uh, there was that heap security incident that mm-hmm. happened in November. Um, and there was this big discussion at Heroku, like, what are we going to do um, and at the end of the day, it was my call. Uh, so, you know, Ruby 187, uh, end of life uh, with security stuff in, uh, I think, the end of June, June 29th or something like that. And uh, Ruby 192 kind of didn't have... I, people don't really know what happened to it, I think, at, at that time. And, like, there was no real announcement. Uh, so the story actually is that uh, the maintainer... Uh, told Matt uh, at Ruby Kagi that she didn't have time to work on it anymore, so she was kind of done with it, and uh, I think that was the official end of life uh, for that, so it never got any patches after that date. Hmm. Um, but, like, there was no public announcement or anything made on that, um, and I'll go, we can go more into that later, but uh, we, we have customers that are both on 187 192, and this was kind of a big deal security incident, but there was patches made for 193 and 200, um, and then two one preview releases. Uh, so we had to figure out like what we were gonna do. I guess like are we gonna leave our customers high and dry? We haven't really like made any announcements that we weren't we were gonna stop supporting these rubies. And so we had to make the decision that to, to kind of backport these security fixes and uh, make those available to our customers. Uh, I think that day was probably would not be the best day to tell people you're not supporting them anymore <laughs> right uh so uh and obviously we don't want to be in the business of uh like 
supporting these rubies like independently like we there's only two of us on the team and there's a lot for us to do so we have pretty limited resources um but i made the call that it's not good to leave our customers uh in a tight spot like that and we have a bunch of customers on 192 and 187 still so we decided to backport and release our own rubies and we made those open source um but one of the things we wanted to do was uh, work upstream and, and get those things into, like, the main repository. And uh, Zachary Scott, also known as Zizak, uh, I think after that instant, kind of vouched for me and and asked for me to get CommitBit um, on core to help maintain that stuff um, and figure a lot of that stuff out. So that's kind of how I got CommitBit. So I got tasked, and there has been an announcement that me and Zach are maintaining 187 and 192 security fixes till uh, June this year. Um, so you have another few months, five months, I guess, left of that. And then the, there's this whole process and policy in place of renewing that. Um, and, and other things we noticed uh, at that time was just like how many vendors are doing this work, right? Like you have Red Hat that has to do it. Um, I'm sure, and then I, I'm pretty sure GitHub did it as well. They have uh, Ruby 187 on some stuff, I think still and then you have you know your other linux distros and other platforms you have to do all this backpointing work so uh one of the goals that came out of that for me and zach was to to kind of like pull all of our resources together uh like as a community and not essentially duplicate all this work um and kind of have the central repository around that um (laughs) yeah so so give me a couple lessons you've taken away from from that whole process of you know, one getting involved in actually patching Ruby to to going through the, the decision making about how to support the old Rubies um, and the rest of it. Sure. Uh, so one of th- the first thing I learned uh, was that uh, Ruby one eight seven is really old, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> like when you when you start backporting this code. So one of the nice things is that all the like a lot of these tests are written in Ruby itself, but like obviously a huge amount of the source code is written in C. So in order to test like you know, someone submitted the security patch and, you know, it has C code and then there's a bunch of Ruby code uh, with it uh, to test it. Um, and one of the things is that, like, when you backport these, uh, you know, you backport this code and it applies cleanly for the most part, except, like, obviously version files and things like that. Uh, and I was like, great, you know, and then I, I compiled it and I, and I manually tested it on Heroku to make sure that the submitted... Uh, like thing that would break it uh, does not break anymore, um, which happened, and and then we released those. Uh, but then uh, the whole testing thing is its own beast. Uh, we found out that the testing infrastructure, like some of the methods that are used, are not actually in the Ruby one eight seven code base anymore. And then uh, I was also told to use this backporting tool. So uh, if people don't know the all the source codes in Subversion and not in Git, I think which is a surprise to people who don't aren't familiar with Core at all. Uh, so I, I relearned how to use Subversion because uh, it's been a long time. Right. And uh, but like uh, these these helper methods that they're using to test this code is not in one eight seven, and the backporting tools that they told me to use to backport the code was not introduced to Ruby one nine three. So neither of those helped me like actually like doing this stuff for one eight seven or one nine two. Uh, so I had to manually do like the backporting. So I learned how to do that and like all the little things you have to do for incrementing those numbers. Um, and then Zach and I are in the process of trying to figure out how to backport all these like test helper methods back to 187. Uh, and 192 is not as bad, obviously, but like the jump between 18 to 19 is actually pretty huge. And uh, I've been relearning that 
um, as we've gone forward through that. Um, and some of the other stuff has just been like working with core is like a totally different experience than working with your standard open source project. The fact that there's a lot of people who are Japanese and uh, like English is not their primary language and they have their own processes and stuff in place. And I think it's really easy to, to miss that if you're not involved in working with it day in every day. Um, <laughs> and so one of the things that Zach and I, like one of our big goals for this year is trying to make getting involved with Ruby, like the language that everyone loves and, and uh, uses every day, like make it easier and much more approachable. Um, so I would love like pipe dream goal. Uh, we'll see how it pans out, but like we would love to move subversion or move off of subversion and onto Git. Um, but there's obviously a bunch of stuff that has to take place to make that happen. Um, and so, like we're gonna sit down and, and try to figure all those things out so it is a smooth transition. Um, uh, I don't think core, like from what I can tell, is actually opposed to moving to Git, but like you can't just move it over the next day. And uh, I think a lot of people just think you just put the repository in GitHub and then you're done, kind of. Um, but like, th there's a ton of tools and other things that are built around Subversion, right. and you have to make all those things work, and you have to make the workflow that everyone uses on core now still work and not break. And uh, they use Redmine for all their ticketing stuff, and that's totally linked to Subversion right now, and, and all their backporting tools. Like, they have a bunch of tooling in the repository around all this stuff, and you basically have to make all those things work uh, with Git and do you uh, do you work with Matts at all? Given given the Ruby core involvement now and the Heroku tie, uh, I don't work with Matts too closely. Uh, the sponsorship for Ruby that Heroku does. So if people don't know, uh, Heroku sponsors Matts, uh, Koichi, and Nobu. Um, I think most people know who Matts is, uh, but like for Koichi and Nobu, uh, Koichi's the guy who wrote all the new garbage collection stuff, more or less, in Ruby two one. And it's kind of the main VM guy uh, on the Ruby project. And Nobu's, they call him the patch monster. So he, he does a crap ton of bug fixes. He's like one of the top committers on Ruby uh, right now. Um, so we sponsor all those guys. Uh, but they're kind of left like on their own. Like they still live in Japan. Like a common question I get asked when I'm at conferences is like, is, does, has Matt's moved to San Francisco or anything? And, you know, no, he still lives in Matsui, like in his hometown. And, and, uh, uh, we, we would like to have better ties and um, we're working on that process but um, you know the sponsorship is definitely a like an investment in the Ruby community to make it better right. uh, and we don't direct or tell them what to do but I think we're in a position to help help out with providing data and other feedback and stuff to help uh, give information to them to help them figure out what to work on and stuff so it seems like you personally have found your way to to very high value, low glory projects with Bundler and and Ruby Core one eight seven and one nine two. Is that is that a surprise to you that you, your sort of career has gone that way, or do you think that that's a a function of your personality in some sort of way? Um, I mean, I, I think a lot of it has come out of. Uh, I don't know if it's part of my personality. Uh, maybe it is. Uh, but I think a lot of that has come out of like being in the position I'm in and seeing the problems that when you you have to do with a large amount of customers uh, and you, and you need to make every one of them successful and and at such a large scale like you kind of you kind of are looking at problems that affect people like like small things that affect a ton of people like 
if you shave off 10 seconds off of like 10,000 builds, that's like a huge savings in hours, right? Um, but like for the average person, it might not be a whole lot. Um, so those kind of things and uh, like a lot of the policy work that I've been working on uh, with RubyCore has come out of like the fact that at Heroku we've had to deal with these issues and we we kind of need that information. Um, and uh, like the work on Bundler is just like obviously that's super. Uh, important for the kind of service we want to provide, right? Like, having good dependency management support is super important, making sure it works, making sure it's fast and performant uh, is important to providing good service. So you mentioned uh, Yehuda Katz a number of times earlier. Um, give us a few lessons or a couple lessons that you've taken away from, from that experience. Uh, yeah, uh, working with Yehuda has been has been an amazing experience. He's a, a very unique individual, but he's a super bright guy, and uh, when he goes down and tackles problems, he's he likes to be very in-depth about it, and uh, his attention to detail is pretty amazing. Uh, it's It was definitely a huge loss, I think, on Bundler when uh, he stopped working on it as much. Um, like, his ability to bring issues to light his attention to having really good user interfaces and intelligent error messaging is super is super great. Like the the reason that Bundler uh, works the way it does with the like the CLI and the error messaging uh, and and kind of values he's brought into the project have been pretty good. Um, like he's he's really pushed like good error messaging. Like if you can provide a better error message, like you should do it. And like guiding users on what to do next and and having next steps and not just throwing ugly backtraces back um, like in a lot of other... Op- like, polish is very important to him. Hmm. Um, other things like um, being very attentive to, like, good project maintenance. Uh, like, we, we work really hard on Bundler to be backwards compatible and to follow stuff like Semver and not to break things. We've had to revert stuff that would have been really nice to have because those are values we have in the project. Um like, you don't want to upgrade your version of Bundler and have, like, your gem file and stuff break. Like, that's just not something you want to do. So, like, abiding to those practices are definitely values that I got personally from working with him and made me be conservative on a lot of a lot more fronts and trying to provide that experience. And hopefully I bring a lot of that stuff to Heroku as well. Um, but I've definitely learned a ton working with him. And if you ever have a chance to, like work on an open source project uh, with him, like, I would say you should go do it. Uh, there's so many things you can learn from working with that guy. So there, um, uh, I saw you mention somewhere, and I don't remember where now, something about learning from Python, too. I think it was at, uh, I think it related to Bundler in some sort of way, but I'm not positive. Um, am I imagining that? Did, did I read that right, that, that you were uh, taking some lessons from Python? Maybe, uh, maybe I, I, I feel like I would say a statement like that. I don't remember <laughs> the exact thing that you are talking about. Uh, well, either do I. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I guess just working on the languages team, like, one of the, uh, one of the great things about working... So we have a languages team at Heroku for all the, like, languages we support on the platform, and we recently just hired a PHP guy, so I'm super excited to see uh, where that goes. And, and mm. not being a avid PHP... You know, developer anymore. Uh, having like interviewed the guy a bunch of time, ta- like interviewed a bunch of people and, and working with the guy, it's it's nice to see that community move forward and they have this whole dependency management tool called Composure now and 
it's very similar to Bundler. Uh, so it, it's great to see, you know, language communities progress uh, as a whole. I think Heroku's in a very interesting spot that uh, it internally is a very polyglot company, and we have to support a bunch of different developer communities, and they each have their own differences and values. Uh, so, so one thing is, like, for instance, in Python, like, things are very explicit. Uh, but, like, in Ruby and especially with Rails and stuff, we have this, like, convention over configuration. So there's assumptions in place, right? And having that background of coming from Perl as well. Uh, so, like, DHH touts, like, convention over configuration all the time. But, like, a very good example, uh, I think Yehuda actually talks about this at his Railsberry talk uh, back in 2012. Um, but basically, like, if you... Um, Look at how uh, Rails handles CR- CSRF uh, security stuff mm-hmm. versus um, um, Python. Uh, it's very different. So in, in Python, you have to... Uh, uh, so if you're not familiar with CRS stuff, CSRF, like you have to generate this token uh, so you can validate um, that you know the form's coming from uh, the user on the server and stuff. Uh, and in, in Python, like you actually have to enter... Or in Django, you have to enter this... like code snip and it's in the documentation like in your form like you build the form and you enter this thing to generate the token um, and in rails like you you if you use the form tag helpers it's automatically done for you like you don't have to think about it it's not something you have to worry about um, but um, that's just kind of the differences of the community like whether one's right or wrong is like I think it's like splitting hairs there but it is kind of it's interesting working in uh, essentially when all your coworkers have different views from yours and and coming to an agreement and respecting them. So I think there's definitely a ton of stuff we can learn from Python and vice versa and, you know, all the other communities too, like Node and uh, Java and uh, uh, PHP as well. Um, it seems working, like you're in a cool yeah, spot. I mean, you're in a cool spot given both the visibility to other languages and to your point about the Japanese culture given given the you know ruby's history and present uh, in terms of who develops it it's it's sort of a cool place to be to see that uh, not everyone's just like you <laughs> yeah that's definitely true um yeah cool well uh on behalf of everyone thanks for all the work you do on bundler and on ruby and on uh, heroku since so many people use it i think you've made a just a huge huge impact on the community and uh it's super appreciated yeah no problem uh, i i love uh Love giving back. Um, so, I don't know. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say. So let's fi- let's let's finish up talking about giving back. And and you mentioned Rails Girls at the beginning. Um, yep. Yeah. Tell us a bit about Rails Girls and what it's about and and how you're involved. And sure. Uh, so Rails Girls is a nonprofit movement group, I guess, to to help tackle, I guess, the diversity issue, but uh, one of the things that has really drawn me to it, um, like I've never envisioned myself historically as like one who's like been a huge person uh, working on these kind of uh, issues, but now it kind of hits home a little bit having been involved with uh, the uh, group, I guess. And uh, one of the things that I so it so the Rails World that most people are familiar with is it's a uh, it's this one to two day workshop that's thrown in uh, various cities around the world, and it allows women to. So there's like usually the first day is like this install fest, um, and you install Ruby and Rails on people's computers so they come in and and you uh, you have these coaches who come in and 
help uh, get all these people set up uh, for the workshop the next day. And usually there's like um like drink like there's some type of drinks and and uh, snacks and stuff provided uh, and and trying to just give this like very like homely like like feel to it so you don't feel like you don't feel stupid asking questions just kind of like really breaking ice and the next day is like this whole workshop um, that tries to get women uh, interested in technology so I don't think the goal for me has never been about teaching people rails specifically I think rails is just a a tool uh, to expose uh, people to technology but um, the stuff that is super important is the showing people this world that they may not be familiar in mm-hmm. um, and they might be distant to and have assumptions and kind of breaking those assumptions down um, and like giving them vocabulary and other things about technology uh, so, so one of the things that uh, they do at some of the Rails World workshops is this bento box exercise. And what it is is, you you know, if if you're not familiar, like the bento box is this box uh, that's usually per, that is Japanese in origin, and it it has like compartment for different uh, pieces of food, and it's supposed to be this like complete meal essentially that provides like nutrients, like all the nutrients you need to have a healthy meal. And uh, uh, for Rails Girls, we use this analogy to kind of if you take like a, an application a web application uh, you can kind of group like the different terminology words into different buckets essentially and so there's we have these printouts and we go through and we we have a like you go look at Foursquare and they list like all the things they use and we go and try to bucket like what they mean like like if you have MySQL or Mongo it might go in like this storage uh, bucket and uh, you know, you have logic for, like, programming languages, and you have, like, the front end, and then you have, um, I forget, like, the other thing. But it essentially gives people, like, who are not familiar with technology this vocabulary to, to kind of approach uh, things, like, this whole world that they aren't, like, having that that terminology and vocabulary and understanding. Like, you might not know the difference between MySQL and Postgres, but you both know, like, they store data. And I think that's, like, a huge jump for a lot of people there. Um so tell me a bit about what's been most difficult as you've you've gone to these events and gotten involved. Something that that uh, kind of knowledge you've taken for granted that you can't take for granted when when you're involved with people that are very new to to programming or to I Rails. You, so if so if if you've never been involved with the Rails Girls or Rails Bridge or something some program like that where you're teaching these people, I highly recommend you go and do that. Um, I think it's a great experience. I think the, the biggest takeaway you take uh, that you realize is like how hard it is to be a programmer and a lot of the things you take for granted, how hard it is to get started. Um, and uh, one of the things for sure is like you realize that like getting started in Rails is actually really complicated and there's lots of um, like get, like installing a Ruby and packaging it is not a simple process. Uh, like stuff like Rails Installer and RBM and RBEM and all these tools have helped a lot. But, like, you know, someone who doesn't even know what the shell is, like, kind of throwing all that at them is definitely really hard. And, uh, like, working on these programs, you realize how much it sucks to get started in Ruby and Rails and, like, how much of a hurdle it is. Yeah, do do you... um, Have you used um, Nitrous.io or any... I'm not sure if there are alternatives to that where... It kind of can can take some of the hassle, at least, of setting up your own development environment. Uh, I've 
personally haven't used Nitrous a lot. Um, I mean, to bring Yehuda up again, he's he's uh, pitched it to me a bunch. Uh, I've met the guys. Uh, I think they're now in San Francisco, but I met them in Singapore, and I've always thought it's like a really great idea and cool. Um, but yeah, I mean, just getting something set up where uh, for a lot of these girls or people, so they can work on something uh, after they leave um, is really important. Um, and may- maybe like having a service that allows you to do that uh, is the right way to go about it. Um, yeah, yeah, I don't really know. I mean, it, it's still hard, even if you have a nitrous box set up and you sit down. It's you're right; it's unbelievably complicated. Uh, what goes into making a good rail or any rails project, let alone a good one? Yeah, um, uh, yeah. Explaining the shell to someone is always uh, a fun experience. I, I think it's a, I think it's a great experience just to go and like try to teach people when you know you don't have that solid foundation when you talk to normal programmers of explaining what a, like concepts are, like what is what is a scaffold, you know, like, uh, like what is, what is active record? Like how do these things work? How do they piece together? Um, I think it's a really rewarding experience cool. to go and do that. Well, if someone wants to get involved with rails girls, do you know how they go about doing that? Yeah. Uh, so there's a, there's the rails girls, Twitter account, which tweets stuff a bunch of times, but there's also the RailsGirls.com website. And on there, there's the, uh, there's usually locations, uh, so under the events, you can see like locations where they are around the world and like what the upcoming ones are. And, uh, if like you have a city that, uh, you live near that you can kind of participate in, uh, if you want to throw your own, you can, uh, there's a form on there. Uh, it's like in your city, I believe, or something like that. And you just fill it out and it sends it out to the global rails girls mailing list. You can also sign up for that as well. There's a global rails girls mailing list and it tells you how to get involved there. Um, and on that list is basically everyone who wants to be involved. So it's like a bunch of the organizers, uh, around the world. Like I think every single organizer who's ever thrown one is on there as well as a bunch of coaches and other people who've helped out a ton. And, uh, everyone's super friendly on that list. Like, uh, it doesn't like there's, it's never had to be moderated or anything. Like, it. Uh, everyone wants other people to be successful. Like, I've seen as far as like someone flying to another city to help out with like another Rails girl. So it's a super supportive community. And uh, yeah, if if you want to throw your own thing, you can get a ton of support from just like how to do it. So there's also on the guide. If you go to guides.railsgirls.com, um, there's well the first thing is like the things you need to do to throw a rails girls event and it has like everything you need to do in that guide. So, um, if you want to go down that path, that's uh totally doable and totally possible. So cool. Well, tell everyone how they can connect with you after they, uh, they hear you on this episode. Sure. Uh, I'm H one E zero two on Twitter. So you can always tweet at me though. I'm not always the best Twitter, uh, person. Um, you can also email me. Uh, it's the same thing at gmail.com, the same handle. Uh, and then anything Heroku related, I, Terrence at Heroku.com. You can reach out to me there. Uh, and then I'm also the guy, if you've never seen me before, I'm the guy who wears like this blue hat. Uh, so uh, if you see me at a conference, feel free to grab me, and I'm more than happy to talk or chat about anything Heroku, Ruby, or anything you want, really. What kind of blue hat? Uh, it's it's actually this uh, university hat I got from school. Um, it's like this baby blue hat and has an H on it, and it stands for 
Hopkins for Johns Hopkins University. Uh, and uh, I just, it's kind of been, like, I never meant it for me it to be my MO, but, like, it's kind of stuck with me, and now I feel weird not having it at conferences and other things because people recognize me with the hat. So <laughs> people, like, like meeting up with people, it's super great because people will find me in a crowd because it's, like, that one guy with the blue hat. Like, there aren't a lot of people like that. Now, do you have so, one of them or like a? I, whole I actually only group? have one of them. Oh and no! I've looked into I've looked into buying another one, but I went to the Hopkins uh, store online where they sell like the paraphernalia and gear, and like it just doesn't have. They don't have it. Like they have other ones that are very similar, but they don't have that exact hat. And but yeah, like I actually like wash it and stuff, and there's like a special thing, like a hat hamper thing you can put it in. And do you wash yeah. it in the in the dishwasher or in the? No, you, I wash it in like a laundry machine okay. uh, with the thing, and I also hand wash it sometimes. So man, this hat's got this hat has stories to tell. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. There's uh, actually like uh, one of my friends. Uh, I used to Skype and hang out with him a bunch, so I'd be like on the TV, and his daughter would recognize me with this hat. And there was one time they were walking down the street, and she saw a guy that had this like hat that was a similar color. And she was like, oh, it's Terrence and Terrence. And they went and she went to like go talk on him. And they're like, no, that's not him. <laughs> so the irony is that your Skype avatar is in a cowboy hat, not your blue hat. Yes, that was that's just from like a photo thing, a photo booth Christmas party from Heroku. I mm. thought it was a really cool hat. It was just like a prop thing. But So it's not just blue hats. It's, it's hats in general that you're into. Yeah, maybe. Um, but it, I definitely recognize for the blue hat, not the pink hat, because I don't even know where to find one of those. Right. Well, hey, Terrence, thanks for all your time today. And uh, it's it's been great hearing about uh, Heroku and Ruby and Bundler and Rails Girls and in your background. For everyone listening, thanks for uh, tuning in to the Ruby on Rails podcast. Uh, this is Sean Devine, and I'm barely known on Twitter. <laughs>